You're socially distanced, but you're not alone. These are the COVID Chronicles with Jenny Rudolph, brought to you by the Center for Medical Simulation. From the front lines of healthcare, the home front, and other unique perspectives on learning and connecting in the time of coronavirus. Welcome to COVID Chronicles. Today I'm here with Dr. Lon Setnick, an emergency physician at Concord Hospital in New Hampshire here in the United States. Lon was the immediate past president of the medical staff of the hospital and also is the medical director of the Forrest D. McCurley Simulation and Education Program. Lon, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So Lon, I'd like to dive right in with what you've been doing that you see as important and moving the agenda forward for your hospital in terms of addressing the COVID challenges in Concord, New Hampshire? So the first work that we've been participating in is really rebuilding the airway process. We heard from colleagues in the ED and anesthesia and intensive care units that they were concerned about their personal safety when they were called to intubate a patient with potential COVID-19. There was a lot of fear amongst all of us, actually, about how we would be able to keep ourselves safe. It was actually only two weeks ago. It's, hard. it's actually really hard to keep track of time right now. But it was two weeks ago that we started digging into how to improve that process. So tell me a little bit about that. When you say digging into that process, people have been accessing resources in a variety of ways. What did that look like for you? Actually, on Twitter, I saw some information that had been put out by our colleague Albert Chen from Hong Kong about the anesthesia approach to airway management. And as COVID-19 became more of a reality in the U.S., we called up that background and actually chatted with Albert a little bit about how he came to develop that. The next thing we did was just go to our emergency department and see what the current state was. And we found that there were there were improvements that needed to be made in terms of the physical environment, as well as improvements that we could do for the teams participating in airway management, for example, creating checklists, et cetera. And then really an opportunity to develop a educational experience for those teams so they could feel more confident that they could provide safe care in airway emergencies. So Lon, let me ask you about that. Concord Hospital is a regional referral center in central New Hampshire and primarily focused on patient care. I know you have one residency program there, but generally your simulation work is, I think, what many of us would think of as translational simulation, which is helping the fully qualified providers understand and do their work better. Yet here in the edge of a major crisis or emergency, you're using the word education. So I'd love to hear what that means at this moment where people need to be ready to provide care. For our teams, it isn't really the intubation itself that they they needed training around. It's more the change in process and readiness that they needed to feel that they could do this in a way that kept them safe. The education opportunity, I think, was just to give them the experience of taking care of a patient with potential COVID in their isolation equipment 
in a way that made them feel that they could actually actually do this as a team. My colleague Chris Rusin at the Center for Medical Simulation has been referring to this moment as really focusing on rehearsal and readiness, which we think lands a little bit better on our clinical colleagues. Like they don't care about education right now. They just want to be able to take care of patients safely. In trying to design a safe process for area management, we really thought of the overlap of several different domains. One is the physical environment. Another one is the systems that help us to deliver that care. And the third one is the knowledge and attitudes of the people in those systems and environments. And so the process we used was really just a needs assessment of walking down to the resuscitation area and seeing what the current state was, doing a walkthrough, and in real time, using Albert Chan's model, but trying to translate it to an emergency department, we, we made a whole bunch of changes in an iterative fashion just in the middle of the emergency department on a, on a Monday morning. And mm. so we did things like our major trauma bay, which was used for trauma and cardiac care primarily, was also our negative pressure resuscitation room. And it housed a lot of equipment that, should it be contaminated by a COVID patient, would be really difficult to clean. So we just swapped all of that equipment in real time into a different space across the hallway that's of similar size and made that trauma bay our COVID resuscitation space because it was a negative pressure room. <laughs> and we created a donning and doffing area for the participants. We moved materials to make them more accessible. And then we did in real time kind of a walkthrough with some of our clinicians. And what we recognize is that it's, it's actually going to be really difficult for people to take all of this new process and implement it. Seeing some of the work that colleagues around the world had been doing with checklists, we decided to create a checklist for our department that came in two forms. One was a process checklist and the other one was an equipment map that could be used to lay out in front of the physician so that they would have all their equipment ready while they were donning their protective equipment. Another member of the team could use this map to make sure that they had everything they needed before they went in the room. I'm hearing this walkthrough idea. I'm also hearing accessing information from around the world and I'm also hearing iterating. Talk to me a bit about that iterative process. How did you get the information? Where did it come from? What did you do with it? Most of the information actually came from Twitter, seeing what people were implementing in their organizations, and then seeing what resources we had. Every organization is slightly different in terms of the, the people that will fill the roles. Cliff Reed and others, it's an international anesthesia organization called SAFER had created some kind of process map, so we tried to modify those to meet our local resources. And then that was on Monday morning, and by Monday afternoon, we actually ran our first course with just some paper printouts of drafts. We first ran some simulation colleagues who are starting to be trained up to do this work with us through an experience. And we really just took an airway head and put it on the bed and had people walk through and, and give us feedback. And so they started to create 
the next versions of the of the process. So an exciting thing about this lawn, aside from the iterative just-in-time accessing of information via social media, to me is the development of what Lorelei Lingard calls collective competence. It seems that you're experimenting together, you're learning what each other do, and you're getting better at the process just by creating the process. Another word I'd just throw in there is uh, from the work of Jody Hoffer-Gattel. She talks about knowing or having increased knowledge of each other's tasks and having a clearer shared goal as markers of good relational coordination. So while the focus is on the airway, it seems to me there are all these really interesting secondary benefits. And I know that's something you've been interested in for many years because you, you know, had a role in leadership of the, at the hospital as well as your simulation role. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your perspective on these sort of secondary gains because I think they're incredibly important for psychological resilience in this moment, building connections among each other. What's your thought on that? A couple of frames of mind that we brought to the moment were Number one, everything temporary is permanent. So whatever changes we make, we need to expect will remain after the COVID crisis. Yeah. And so we should try to do things that in the long term will make us better, as opposed to just providing stop gaps. The other kind of mantra I would have been saying for the last few weeks is never let a good crisis go to waste. <laughs> and, and then the last piece is really that constraints sometimes create opportunities. In this case, the constraint of lack of communication and lack of people being able to be in the room with the intubator is uh, is an interesting constraint on a team, but actually makes the intubation process itself much, if, if done well, in my mind, much safer. And we shouldn't go back to the way we used to do intubation. So I, I believe that the intubation process we have now is better than what we were using before, even though it's much more constrained in the communication. I've been trying to think, how can this be better in the long term and not just be safer for the intubator? Briefly, could you just do a quick compare and contrast uh, for us on what was the old intubation process and what's the new one? The old intubation process was much more dependent upon the individuals and their habits. So, for example, one of the things that I observed is that the communication around the airway plan, first I'm going to try to use video, and then I'm going to try to use direct laryngoscopy, and then if that doesn't work, I'll use a bougie, and if that doesn't work, I'll use a supraglottic device. That was usually not explicit, and that led to no bad outcomes, but just less effective teamwork. Additionally, the different roles that people played was also much more flexible. So. There could be quite a lot of variability in who was doing what, as well as a fair amount of noise in the intubation as many, many people came to watch and had side conversations. In this case, in the after, we need to have a very clear airway plan with plan A, B, C, and D. And this needs to be addressed by the team before they even go in the room because they're really constrained in what they what objects they can bring in the room. Because whatever you bring in the room, you're going to need to expect has to either be thoroughly cleaned or thrown away. So you really limit your options that are in the room, and that 
requires much better communication among the team members. And then once you go into the room, the intubator, who I think in the past in, in our shops, the emergency physician would often feel responsible for both the procedure and being aware of the situation and the patient status. And I think we didn't do that as well as we thought we did. In this case, you have to give up the situational awareness to another team member because wearing a PAPR or a lot of isolation equipment really limits your field of view and your ability to hear the alarms, et cetera, et cetera. So as in the past where I think our teams felt that the physician performing the intubation held all the authority, we've really had to split that authority into the physician and their intubating assistant performing the procedure, but somebody else being responsible explicitly for the situational awareness. And, and I believe that's how it should have been all along and that our teams will be better because of that. But the constraints of the isolation equipment have really made that clear. So that is fascinating, Lon. You used the word constraints earlier and essentially thinking like an operations management person. What you're saying is if we apply something like Goldrot's theory of constraints, which in operations management sometimes plays out as if we reduce the buffers, we reduce inventory, for example, in manufacturing, when you reduce inventories and you reduce the number of people working on things, the metaphor that often comes up is it's like a stream and you're lowering the water in the stream and you can see all the different rocks and all the processes that you have to kind of work your way around. And what you're saying is that the constraints of the personal protective equipment, not wanting to have to sterilize or clean extra stuff, thinking about the ins and outs of the room, that's all in operations management terms kind of excess or fat. We, we can't do that in this context. So it's forcing us to create much more streamlined processes with the example in this case of intubation. So what I'd like to do, Lon, is ask you to go back to something you brought up at the beginning, which is you thought about this airway management process and infection control and, and colleague safety as including a system of cares piece, physical environment piece, and then colleagues sort of knowledge and attitudes. Could you summarize for us, you've sort of done it, but summarize for us what you see as the changed pieces of that puzzle now so that others of us who may still be trying to iteratively improve our airway management processes in our hospitals or clinics uh, learn from what you did. So I think the summary is really the solution needs to be commensurate with the size of the problem. And so here we have a really large safety gap that needs to be solved from multiple different directions. You need to provide a safe environment. You need to provide a safe system of delivery. And then you also need to give people the opportunity to rehearse this, to feel confident that they will be able to be safe when they do the actual activity. So just jumping in for a sec, the safe environment came to some degree from studying the space, cleaning out stuff that was in there, creating that new map of the equipment. The systems of care piece, I'm a little less clear on, so could you oh. just unpack that? Okay, so in this, we created a checklist of the people who were in the room, what their roles were, the people who were outside of the room, and what their roles were. Because the, the piece we didn't talk about is you also need to be able to communicate through a closed door 
to people outside of the room in case you need anything else. But that's, a, that's another constraint. The system is those people coming together and understanding their roles as they deliver this unit of care. Fantastic. And then yeah. the knowledge and attitudes, if we can use that word, of the people, how would you summarize the new world or the approach that Concord Hospital and Monset Neck End team are now using? So we studied this a little bit, actually, not in a formal study, but we actually did evaluations of the training that we put the team through. And we found that people moved from disagreeing or strongly disagreeing that they felt prepared to manage the airway of a patient with uh, potential COVID vast majority of the time. And we moved that needle to about an equal portion now feeling strongly that they agree that they felt prepared. And so to me, that gave us evidence that we were doing the right thing for our teams to feel that they could go to work tomorrow and take care of these patients. That is fantastic. Um, Bill McGahee and uh, Victoria Brazel have both written really interestingly on translational SIM. And uh, Vic's recent article in the last couple of years talked about using simulation in a kind of diagnostic way, translational SIM, which you did to kind of, with those walkthroughs to see what was happening. And then you created some simulation interventions to improve physical environment and the system of care. One of the things uh, she writes about in that article is improving relationships and culture, which I talked about earlier as sort of that secondary gain. I think there's something really important there that is easily overlooked as all of us try to do this rehearsal and readiness. So I wonder if you could talk with me about your take on how and if that's changed at all. That's a, been a huge part of this work. I'm making this sound like it was an emergency department only project, but that's actually just where it started. The other people who intubate in the organization are the intensivists and the anesthesiologists, and they also were feeling anxious. So after kind of version one was developed, which was on Monday of last week, on Tuesday of last week, we brought it to those two departments in kind of paper draft form and said, what do you guys think? And so we got feedback from them. And I will also add from the Twitterverse, so I also kind of put my draft out to the Twitterverse and got feedback from people I didn't I didn't uh, know would be paying attention and it's, I'm very grateful for. Iterated two more times. So Tuesday, we we worked on bridging with other departments who also would be involved. And the, with the idea is that we all needed to be better at, at having at least a shared mental model for what we could end up participating in because it is the case in a community hospital, especially that people from the emergency department sometimes have to go to the intensive care unit to intubate. People from the intensive care unit sometimes go to the floor to intubate and as well as the anesthesiologist covering both of those areas. And we weren't yet sure what our resource allocation needs would be across the organization. So we wanted to have a shared mental model that we could all agree to. The two things that we did on the Tuesday were work with them to iterate and then also train members of the emergency department and ICU teams in being able to scale the education to their teams. While this was happening, we were also then pulled to try to develop a safe code blue process for the organization, which we did on Thursday. So we actually tried on Wednesday to, to develop this as a kind of a 
standing course that other people could implement for their areas. So that involved sign-in sheets as well as evaluations, and that ended up being really important for us because towards the end of the week, it became clear that not only was COVID a major stressor for our organizational readiness in terms of a, a safety standpoint and our ability to care for our patients, but also a, a financial catastrophe for every hospital as we closed all our operating rooms and all our outpatient offices. And one of the things that happened was well-intended administrators under a lot of pressure came down and said, and what is the sim lab doing right now? Should you be at home or should you be here working? And we had 200 signatures and evaluations demonstrating the improvements that people felt were valuable to them. And that really helped the administrators feel that they were spending their money wisely by continuing to, to pay us to be there. So by Friday, we had a course that was being given to multiple departments with sign-ins and evaluations and kind of proving our value to the greater organization. And then this course was not actually being given by me anymore. It, was, it had been handed off to other people. That very nature has uh, improved our relationships with the people who are providing the courses as well as the departments that are, are giving them themselves. Mm -hmm. Oh, the other part of that course was we we created a cart in the sim lab that had all of the equipment that somebody would need to deliver the course. So they could just basically push this cart up to their area, and it had the intubating equipment, an airway head, a checklist of the equipment they needed. And we had been working on our in-situ simulation process prior to this, so we were able to label everything and make sure that it was labeled not for patient use and kind of make sure that we were we were doing this in a safe way, even as it escaped our direct control. So those were the different parts that we kind of thought about to be able to scale this effectively, even for a moderate-sized community hospital. It sounds like as you were thinking about the project's content, there was a lot of tendrils and, in social network analysis terms, building a lot of ties with a lot of different people. and creating stronger ties among those people themselves. So you've created some legitimacy for the program by showing how much you were actually helping. But in terms of improving relationships and culture, those things somehow got to connect. Well, the course by its very nature was designed not to be for the intubator, but for the whole team. The team would involve a respiratory therapist, who we had really not worked closely with before, the nurses in the area, as well as the techs in the area. So there was definitely a purposeful design that this, this activity needed to include the entire team that was going to be performing the activity, not just the physician. Lon, I'd like to, if I could, talk with you about how this situation has been landing on you. I know it's a tiring, demanding time, and at the same time, I see a lot of inspiring work being done. I'm just wondering how you're getting through, what's meaningful for you, what's challenging for you, how's it going? Well, by far the biggest challenge is that my children are not in school, and my wife is also a physician. Our kids, our kids are 14 and almost 16, so they are figuring things out at a time where they're already pretty independent, but they're, they've been kind of left to do it on their own. And it's, it's been an added layer of stress. 
for neither of us to be home while they figure out what their education experience is online. So many parents are struggling with that and worrying about bringing home germs. It must be very difficult. Yeah, that, that added stressor of me potentially being the big fomite in the family is um, that is real. And, you know, you try to put systems in place. I bought a pair of shoes that's just going to stay at the hospital and uh, et cetera, et cetera. It is, it is definitely a, a added stressor for, for our family and for me. I think the things keeping us afloat, we're kind of fortunate enough three years ago, unrelated to this, to have moved to a more isolated area with a lot of trails out behind our house. And so I've been taking advantage of those and our, our dogs are very uh, well exercised right now. And so that's been a, a, an area of kind of a solace. That's great. Well, Lon Setnick, thank you so much for your time and more importantly for your work on behalf of patients in New Hampshire, my next door state. And um, it's really a joy for me to get to spend a little time for you at a time that I know is challenging. Well, it's been great to talk to you, and I'm very grateful for all of the simulation colleagues at Center for Medical Simulation, as well as around the world, who've really been able to help us understand how to do our work better. Um, and then the stories that people are telling who are not simulationists have been very motivating for us, myself and my colleagues, who to make change. So I think one of the things that's worth recognizing is that more change has come to the American healthcare system in the last two weeks than had come in the previous 20 years, in my experience. And it demonstrates the value of a really good burning platform. And we know that things are going to be dramatically different um, some, in some good ways that we weren't able to achieve before but wish we had. Um, there'll also be some tremendous challenges. And so I don't mean to say that it's all positive, but I do think that this is an opportunity for us to rethink a lot of the ways that we've worked in the past. Thank you. Thank you for listening, and we hope this was a bit of an oasis in your day. Remember, you're socially distanced, but you're not alone. These are the COVID Chronicles with Jenny Rudolph. Learn more at www.harvardmedsim.org.